The journey to winning championships has never been ordinary for Tampa Bay, but whenever that city wins a title, it never gets old, as the Bolts are on top of the hockey world once again. The main question for the top dogs in Florida is a three-peat on the horizon. As for the Montreal Canadiens, an epic run didn't have the happy ending that most fans were hoping for. How long until they make it back to the Stanley Cup Finals? And while the offseason started a few days ago, moves were made long before it began. Episode 277 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Tuboff. On this occasion, Brett Lightning has struck the same place twice. The Tampa Bay Lightning are Stanley Cup champions again. Well, technically, it's not really the same place twice because they were in the bubble the first time. But yes, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I, I still like that uh, that pun, so I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. But I feel like every... <laughs> Sports media outlet has used that pun at least. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. I, I haven't really seen too much about it, at but I, I do like it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, so, anyways, yes, as uh, Steve mentioned, and I'm sure you guys are aware, Tampa won the Stanley Cup. Uh, this is a back-to-back, and it, it's kind of interesting too because th- these past two years have been probably the weirdest seasons um in memory at least um i'm sure there was <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure some like old that. yeah i'm sure some old fogey will like say like oh actually in 1924 the, there was this like crazy thing but it, it just uh, in recent if you memory remember in 2004 brett remember what happened after the Santa bay lightning won the first cup it's true the yeah. there, was a, there was a lockout yeah that's a good point yeah um but yeah, I mean, so so, but like in, in its own right, like winning these, winning the Stanley Cup, I mean, is always impressive, uh, regardless of how they do it. But um, but it's it's even more impressive with um, with, with just like repeating it, uh, given like you know you you never knew what the whole safety precaution is. You didn't know if you there was that added fear. Of uh, of getting COVID, um, which you didn't have in in other years and stuff like that. And when you're in the bubble, it's like you're away from your family, you're away from society, and all that stuff. So, um, so as much as I don't really love the team, I do have to applaud them and say that uh, yeah, they they deserve it. Um, and I, th- I think it was Down Goes Brown mentioned this. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically what he said is that, like, as good of, of a run that Montreal had, um, you know, they kind of showed that, you know, that any team can pretty much do this and stuff. Um, it just wouldn't have felt as right if, if Montreal had won the whole thing just because Tampa was the best team. Um, like any, like even I would imagine even hardcore Montreal Canadiens fans would agree, agree to that. There wasn't, I mean, other than Game Four, I guess, but um, but there wasn't really a point in this series where you felt like Montreal was going to win uh, four games out of seven. 
um, here, and it was purely because Tampa kind of dominated and stuff. Um, I'll get to your thoughts, Steve, in a second. Um, I do want to mention, though, that uh, just some stats here. Uh, so Kucherov uh, had the most points in the playoffs. He had 30. Um, and then, uh, but in this series in particular, he had five points uh, that led um, the team in points. Um, then you also have uh, Tyler Johnson, Blake Holman, and Andre Palat. Oh, and Barclay Kutro all had four points. Uh, also, um, what was interesting was um, Ross Colton. He had the game winner um, in game five, um, and that was his only point. It's interesting. I, we, we briefly talked about him before in a couple of episodes ago, but um, it's, just, it's, it's just interesting because he's like a fourth liner, and all of a sudden he just starts scoring goals. It's like, where did he come from? Uh, which kind of goes into our next question. But first off, what um, what are your thoughts on this series as a whole? Well, I I don't know if I would say Tampa dominated. There were definitely stretches where they were swarming Montreal, and Carey Price was keeping everything at bay for the Canadians. So there was there was definitely there definitely is an argument that can be made that Montreal never really had control of this series. Right. And part of the reason was the only time they scored the first goal even had a lead was game four. Right. They had the one nothing lead early in game four and then they made then they made it a two to one game so they retook the lead and then they were forced in overtime and then a little bit into overtime Josh Anderson of course right. with that hard work and tenacity got the game winning goal. That's all the leads they had to work with in this series. Game one, it was tied for a bit. Tampa took the lead, took it from there. Uh, same thing in game two, even though Montreal, in terms of offensive chances, looked like the better team. Tampa also had theirs, but the shots were a two-to-one margin for the Habs, basically, and Vasilevsky stole that game. And even still, Montreal didn't have a lead for a single second yeah. in that game two. In game three, where Tampa Bay was definitely better than they were in game two and just really took the wind out of Montreal's sail in the or in the first five minutes of the first period. Then they did it again in the second period. They were in control of that game, and that arguably took the wind out of the Habs' sail for good. Like, you put them down 3 nothing, it's tough to come back from that. And then you see, of course, the, the type of fight you would see out of a team that doesn't want to go home. And Montreal lived to fight another day after that game for a win. And in Game 5, the Tampa Bay Lightning did what they did in the previous series clinchers, what, which was basically give the other team nothing to work with. Yep. And in the final 20 minutes especially, uh, they didn't give the Habs much of anything at all offensively. And whenever the Habs did get a chance, Vasilevsky was there to save the day, as right. per usual. Yeah, yeah. So I think in terms of who was the better team, it was obviously Tampa. Montreal gave them a good run for their money, I would say. If they win game two... You never know. Stranger things have happened. What right. what happens from there? It's a tie series going back to Montreal. You have 3,500 fans, but that can be like a 10,000-plus venue with the way they were cheering and just the atmosphere in Montreal. There's – like Tampa Bay, the atmosphere is pretty good too, but at, atmospheres like Montreal, a lot of markets pale in comparison to that. I will um, say so, I thought – 
on 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 that note, I I will say that I thought the fans were not as excited when the game felt like they had won the Stanley Cup again. Like they they're already in Tampa. It felt like they had already won. That like they were just like jaded already and, and bored and stuff. I mean, I guess this is ironic coming from a Boston fan, uh, but like. Um, I don't know, it, it, it's, uh, and now Tampa is like the city of champions all of a sudden now, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was, I, I will say, I felt like the fans weren't as excited as I thought they should be. I think they were a lot more excited in 2004 when it's like never yeah. been done before, but you're And right. they were more they, of the underdog, win, yeah. Yeah, and they won the Stanley Cup last year too, and I'm glad you mentioned the point about championships because they have been a city of championships since the pandemic yep. hit, it's Tom Tampa Brady. Bay Lightning won. Tampa Bay won the Stanley Cup in 2020. So that was in October, and then the Rays. A full later, the Tampa Bay Rays go to the World Series. Yep. Right? They didn't. They win, come up short yeah. that, but they're there. Right? Yep. That's that's a championship run. I of sorts, I would say, didn't mm-hmm. end with a championship, but they got to the finals. That's something, right? Then. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, led by Tom Brady, who else? Uh, they win the Super Bowl. That's in February of 2021. And then the Tampa Bay Lightning defend their title. Yep. All of that in a span of 10 months-ish. Yep. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, when are we going to see that? Which I think adds to how good this back-to-back run is. And we've seen a lot of back-to-back titles in NHL history in person we've seen a few uh, we've been alive for the Red Wings uh, the back to back in 97-98 and then it took a while but then Pittsburgh did it in 2016 and 2017 yep. and then Tampa Bay does it now but like the fact that these guys were able to go into the bubble win the title especially after the way 2019 ended for them against Columbus and then they're able to repeat not even a full 12 months later. It, it's pretty incredible when you consider the amount of hockey they had to play in between all of those championships mm-hmm. and the absolute grind they had to go through. And those teams were, for the most part, relatively unchanged. They stayed yeah. the same. And they have accepted the fact that there are going to be a couple of noteworthy guys on this team that won't be back next year. Which we'll get to. But for the time that they were there together... All they did was win, yep. and they. And I know that Tampa Bay, a lot of in a lot of people's eyes, was the best team. They were the third best team in their division because Carolina and Florida were also pretty good. Yep. So they were a very strong third seeded team in that stacked division in that stacked top three. And a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, well, they're eighteen million over the salary cap." Right. I should also remind people back in twenty fifteen. Uh, the Blackhawks were over the cap, not by 18 million, but they were still over well, the they cap. Did, and they also didn't have Patrick Kane for most of the season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was one team that advocated to close that loophole. Guess who that was? Oh, yeah. Right. The Tampa Bay Lightning, the yeah. team that was 18 million over the salary cap. So, in a healthy Joseph Karma, they tried to close the loophole that's still open. So, mm. they took advantage of it. Yep. So, you know what? It's not illegal. It might look kind of shady to not have a cap in the Stanley Cup playoffs, but at this point, it's not illegal. It's not the rule book that says you can't do this. Right. So Tampa Bay did it, and 
they they took advantage over those also, loopholes. And part of that loophole was because Kucherov was on LTIR, but they also had Sorelli extended and Sergachev extended. So those two extensions right. in the Kucherov entry is basically part of the reason why they're over the salary cap. And Tyler Johnson, who was put on waivers multiple times and was attempted and they attempted to trade it, trade him a couple of times as well mm. in the previous offseason. Then the Kucherov entry incident uh, happens and they're just like, well, I guess we can keep him around because like Kucherov's not going to be around for a while. That's part of how they got to right. that point where there's so much money over the cap. So I, I think for the most part, I, I think Tampa Bay would still be a formidable Stanley Cup threat even if they were yep. uh, uh, around that threshold, like if they were like only a million or two over the cap, yep. Tampa Bay would still have the majority of the pieces they would need to, at the very least, make a title run. I don't know if they win the Stanley Cup, but they it doesn't affect the core pieces like Stamkos or Braden Point or... Andre Vasilevsky, the Consmite Trophy winner. This yep. team was still very, very solid and rightfully deserved to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I remember when this playoff started and we were talking about this Kucherov things. I was kind of angry, but more at the NHL uh, than the yeah. Lightning because they were able to do it. Um, and also, like I've I've seen other like points to it, and I kind of agree with it. One being that Montreal was also over the cap this playoffs because uh, of Brendan Gallagher's injury as well. So that's I something think to take St. Louis was over the cap yeah, as St. well, Louis and they got throttled by the abs in the first and, round. And also, like, Dallas would be over the cap because of Tyler Sagan's injury if they had made the playoffs. So it's even, yeah. like, it's impressive that Tampa was even able to make the playoffs um without Kucherov and that kind of speaks to our next question which I'll get into in a second but like Dallas didn't make the playoffs Tampa did because they're a good team like yes Kucherov is a top three top maybe even top two um players in the world but they also have Braden Point they also have Stamkos they also have like the best goalie in the league Hedman uh you know Sorelli all these guys um, so it's it's not just Kucherov and like yeah you could pro- like I guess I can see why people are mad about it but I, I like at the same time I feel like they they had a good shot even without Kucherov that's how like stacked they are and how good their depth is um, also like just when you looked at their trade deadline moves that they made they only really got David Savard um, this offseat or you know during the trade deadline. Um, and, and that would be, like, money that they could theoretically have used to pay Kucherov in the re- to make him play in the regular season if he was healthy. Um, and when you think about, like, I, I feel like this team would win without David Savard. I, as good as he was, um, like, I, I feel like Tampa didn't necessarily need David Savard to... Uh, to win this Stanley Cup. So that's the other point where it's like, yeah, it, like, I guess I can, like, t- yeah, they use this loophole, but so could other teams. Like, if the Senators did this or the Bruins did this, uh, we'd be saying the same thing. So, um, Maple Leafs, too. Maple Leafs. Well, I'm, I'm talking about our teams in, in particular, but yes. Well, yeah. I, um, but, like, I, I, I don't, like, I don't think any, every team, if they could do this, they would. 
it's also like hard to just make the playoffs without your best player like Dallas for instance um, they didn't have Sagan and they were clearly impacted by that the Blues didn't have Tarasenko for a lot of the year um, and uh, I mean I guess Ryan O'Reilly might be their best player but uh, Tarasenko certainly would have helped them if he was healthy so um, so that's like you know uh, they, they would be more dangerous if they were in there so it's like um, it's it's kind of a, a similar thing to that where it's like yeah Tampa this could have easily shot in their face if Kucherov just wasn't healthy and wasn't ready um, it was it was kind of funny too uh, speaking of Kucherov uh, because uh, after they had won he did this press conference um, and uh, he was clearly plastered um, and he had his shirt off and he was uh, talking about, he was just, uh, he was saying that uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, he said that guy in Vegas, because he was blanking on Marc-Andre Fleury's name, uh, shouldn't have won. Um, it should have been Vasilevsky because he's always, he's been the best. He's kind of been like uh, rooting for him. Um, and that's purely because I guess he was asked about the con Smythe that, um, that I guess you could have given to Kucherov, but I think, uh, it made sense to give it to Vasilevsky. The other thing that uh, Kucherov said uh, was that after the game, he felt like the Canadians um, after game four, or the fans uh, were uh, celebrating like they had won the cup after game four. And they were just like, he, he was just like, it's an entire series. It was, um, you know, it's just one game and all that stuff. So he, um, it was it was interesting because like I, I did see some backlash where people just felt like that was unprofessional but at the same time like Kucherov like won back to back he's a back to back champion he was the best skater uh, in that span uh, he deserves to trash talk and we need more of that type of personality in this league um, so so don't, if you're if you're upset with Kucherov for for that press conference then I don't know what to tell you it's um it, it, it just uh it seemed like yeah I guess he could have like maybe not have been as vulgar but um it, it was just a little bit um um I I, I feel like it's it's a good thing because like when you look at the NBA um all they do is trash talk um and it's it what's it's really what grows that sport um, and, um, or, you know, keeps the intrigue going. So I think now it's, it's interesting because now I feel like Kucherov's going to be booed in Montreal all the time now. And, um, and maybe, you know, another Montreal player will, uh, say something back to, to Kucherov or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, it, it, it didn't make sense to me that like he was getting so much backlash about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, he played a season in the Quebec Major Junior League um, and and played part of it with the Quebec Ramparts, which, yeah. um, any ties to Quebec City, I'm sure that's enough reason for Montreal to relentlessly boo a player. Yeah. Because of the Montreal-Quebec rivalry. Like, people in Quebec City, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are just like, I don't care if the Habs are the only NHL team that's from Quebec, I'm not cheering for the Montreal Canadiens. They're like the allegiance between the Nordiques and the Habs, it's 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 still pretty yeah. ingrained, and 
like very unwavering for the people of Quebec City. So I don't know if Montreal really like Kucherov to begin with. I'm sure they'll happily say, hey, thanks for the offseason motivation, pal. Just wait till next year. Right. Um, because both of these teams, again, people forget, but, once the divisions change back to normal, they'll be divisional opponents. Yeah. So we'll have like four Stanley Cup final rematches next year, which is, hey, it's going to be... Well, uh, pretty crazy there. But. It's interesting too because the Dal- the Dallas Stars were in this uh, the same division as the Tampa Bay Lightning were this year. Yeah. So it's like it's the second time that's going to happen. Um, yeah, no, and I, yeah, I I guess and also like Kucherov will always have the upper hand unless Montreal wins the Stanley Cup, of course. But um, but yeah, or I guess they beat a Tampa in uh, in the playoffs at some point, but. Um, that, that seems a little bit unlikely, which we'll get into in a second. Anyways, uh, we're going back on track here. Andre Vasilevsky, he gets the con Smythe. Uh, in this series, he uh, had a GAA of 1.58, a save percentage of 942, um, and he only allowed eight goals in these five games. Uh, six of those goals were in game four and game three. Um, which so like he only allowed one goal in in th- uh, three of those games. Um, also, five yeah. straight series clinching shutouts. Yeah. By the way, yeah, uh, that's how you know that uh, wh- whenever he's on his game <laughs> in a clinching game like that, then you know he's been really good. He also had a one ninety GAA uh, throughout this entire playoffs and a nine thirty seven save percentage. So he definitely deserves. The Colin Smythe. I guess you could have made a case for Kucherov, who had 32 points. Um, I think like the next closest was. Um, let me look here. I think um, I don't have it offhand. Oh, Braden Point, who had 23 points. Um, so, so I, I guess you could make the case that it was Kucherov just because of that point disparity. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think like it. It could have gone to either one. Um, and I don't think there would have been any complaints, really. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I guess um, good, good for Andre Vasilevsky. He definitely deserves it. Um, and I'm sure, like, yeah, he's probably upset that he didn't get the Vezina, but he got the Smythe. He gets two cups. Um, and didn't you win the Vezina last year? I think you did. So I think he did win yeah. the Vezina last year. So, yeah. so I, I, don't, I don't think he's too sad about no. uh, not getting no. the Vezina this year. But... Um, but yeah, I, th- I think he, uh, you know, he, it was definitely well deserved for for Andre Vasilevsky. Also, uh, first goalie since Jonathan Quick in 2012 with the LA Kings yep. to win the Conn Smythe. And uh, I guess it, now that we're doing some random factoids here, Patrick Patrick Maroon gets his third straight <laughs> cup. I believe yeah. the last player to do that is Mario Lemieux. Uh, so basically, Mario Lemieux and uh, Pat Maroon are the same player. Um, uh, no, no, Lemieux went back to back, but he didn't win three oh. in a row. Uh, the '93 Islanders will see to it that didn't happen. But right, if they right. win the cup in '93, definitely would have. Oh, I thought for some reason. So I guess I got that stat wrong. I thought it was Mario Lemieux. Who I don't it, even know. It, was I? I don't think someone? it was. I don't think it was Mario. No. Okay, well, it was someone who was equally as good as Mario. Um, 
Maybe it was Gretzky. Was it? Could it have been Gretzky? I don't think so. No, no. No. Well, probably someone of the Islanders. Right, because they won three in a row. Because because they won. They were the last team to win three in a row. Right. Right. Yeah, I guess you're right. That makes sense. Um, but yeah. So so Mike Bossy and uh, Pat Maroon have uh, have the same feet, um, basically. Um, yeah. And Danny yeah. Podvin's probably in that category as yeah, well because yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was there for like start to finish on that dynasty for the Islanders yeah. too. So. Also, speaking of, um, well, I, I I talked about him in a, uh, a couple of minutes ago, but David Savard, uh, I I guess he was the only real new addition for that uh, the Lightning. He gets mm-hmm. um, he gets the first cup toss when Stamkos originally. Lifts it. This was also interesting too because Stamkos, um, you know, uh, didn't pl- uh, he, got, he got injured uh, last playoff, so he didn't really mm-hmm. play too much. He had that one game um, in the finals, but he didn't really play too much. Um, but uh, yeah, so this time um, he does play a lot and, and gets the Stanley Cup finals um, or gets to like skate with it even more than he could have the last time. Um, and to show how much of a team unit this is, Braden Point got the Stanley Cup after 14 others. Wow. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's player to get it, yeah. I didn't even notice that, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess it feels a little bit less special when they won the year before, so they're probably just yeah. like, you know what, I don't have a rush to carry the cup. Uh, but I thought that was nice that they uh, they gave uh, Savard the the trophy before everyone. Shout else. out to, uh, to former Sens defenseman Freddie Clayson who got to yep. be part of that. Happy for him. Yep, um, and also Matthew Joseph as well. Um, I think he mm-hmm. lifted the cup for the first time. There was a couple of players that didn't get to hold it beforehand. Um, Yes, uh, so the other things I have here, first repeat since the Pittsburgh Penguins, so Steve already mentioned that. Um, Okay, so now we have, um, we kind of alluded to this already, but I guess our question here is what went right for Tampa? Um, I I think, uh, like I mentioned before, it's like when I was just listing off like the players that Tampa had, um, their depth is pretty much a big reason why they were able to do that. Like, uh, yep. Steven Stamkos is probably like top top twenty best players in the league, um, and he's probably their third best player on the team. That just shows how good their depth is. Um, and, um, and and you know he, I mean he had an impressive playoffs. He had eighteen points in twenty three games, um, and so did Victor Hedman. But like Braden Point had twenty three points in twenty three games. And Kucherov had 32 points in 23 games as well. They also had help from Alex Kilhorn, Andre Palat, Anthony Sorelli, Blake Coleman, Eric Chernak, Ryan McDonough, who got a first place Conn Smythe vote, which was interesting, um, Danny Gord, Barclay Goudreau, I'm basically listing the entire team here, Ross Colton, David Savard, Pat Maroon, Mikhail Sergachev, Jan Ruta, Matthew Joseph, and Luke Shen. Um, although I guess Luke Shen only had one goal, but every every player I just listed had like a point, and they all contributed. Um, and then like you know if Kucherov or Point or Stamkos or Hedman aren't stopped, well good luck because you also have like a really good goalie in Andre Vasilevsky. So I I think the depth is just 
the biggest reason why they were able to win again. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's like, yeah, they didn't, you know, the Carolina won the division. Uh, Florida also had more points than them. But when it all comes down to it, it was just clear that Tampa just knew what it takes and, and they were able to uh, get um, get into gear. I think the, the true defining moment when they when you realize okay this team is definitely going to be back was um forget which game it was but it was during it was one of those games in against carolina when carolina like scores three straight and you're thinking like okay so carolina has this in the bag this is now a series Mm -hmm. and and then all of a sudden tampa just starts firing and like even though Carolina was still in the mix every now and then, it was like a seven-six uh, final. But like it just it showed actually, that it was actually six-four yeah. and six, four. Tampa used like four and eight yeah, goals yeah. in the second period right, and right, then right. just shut them down from there. But like it, it just showed that like yeah they they like even though like usually Vasilevsky is pretty good and stuff, but like it just showed that even when Vasilevsky is having a bad game they're they're able to come back and and are just mm-hmm. determined to work out and that just shows I mean I mean maybe it was a little bit to do with Carolina's own weakness in in goal but um, but at the same time it's like Tampa was just determined and they were just ready to mm-hmm. to go and shots firing all over the place so I think that was a big because they, they've been in every possible situation yeah. that's why they know yeah. how to handle pressure like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of funny because the last time they they lost a series was uh, in Columbus when they got swept mm-hmm. in uh, 2019. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, um, I, I feel like, you know, if you told me that after Columbus swept them in 2019 that pretty much the same, that same team was going to go back-to-back um, and win, I'd be like, you're kind of crazy. I could see it, but you're kind of crazy because I I just didn't think they had like they just didn't have the playoff fortitude um, at the time. And, and clearly, once they were able to get over that hump, they were able to uh, to uh, do anything they can. So um, so I think there is something to um, to just that team identity where they they never give up. Um, and they just have a lot of depth, and they rely on it. And they're just a good team. Uh, they're the envy of everyone, and they should be. Mm-hmm. And you look at guys like Braden Point, who were so clutch. He had that, like, nine-game goal scoring yep. streak, something like this. I don't think he scored a goal after that. And they're just like, well, they're going to get contributions from guys like Nikita Kutron, guys like Steven Stamkos, Ross Bolton, who get the cup-winning goal. Uh, Tyler Johnson, who's been waived multiple times, as we mentioned before. Hey, two goal game in game game three because why not? Right. In Montreal, who cares? They'll score two goals for you. They they just they're able to get contributions from the guys you don't expect to contribute big games in the key moments, and that's what makes this team so special. That's what makes them a threat. Is they just keep finding new ways to win, and it's a different guy every single time. Yes, it's Brayton Point most of the time. Yes, it's Nikita Kucherov and Andre Vasilevsky most of the time. And Steven Stamkos and Victor Hedman too. But they have a lot of other guys that can be difference makers, like Blake Coleman was in Game 2. Right. That goal that he scored basically changed the momentum of Game 2 and gave them the win. 
even though Montreal was controlling the game. They just get big plays when they need it most. And again, that's another characteristic of a true winner. Yeah, speaking of Blake Coleman, he is a UFA. Uh, it's, yep. it's Steve's favorite free agent uh, target. Yeah, uh, at least two-thirds of the league will be interested in this guy. You can guarantee it. Well, it was just funny because after every obituary, uh, Steve was just saying <laughs> yep. that. I think that okay, this team Blake could Coleman use a Blake Coleman type. Yeah, just like, yeah, Blake, okay, we get it. Because he, he does Coleman. everything. He does he do everything. He adds offense. So. He can get shots yeah, yeah. on goal. He kills penalties. Oh, he I can know, hit. Yeah. He can do everything. He's a Swiss Army knife. Uh, uh, Blake Coleman's a UFA, Barclay Goudreau's a UFA, Jamel Smith is a UFA, David Savard, Luke Shen, um, and then I guess their two uh, backup goalies, uh, Christopher Gibson and Curtis McElhaney, are UFAs. As for RFAs, Ross Colton, who gets the game winner, Alex Beret-Boulet, and uh, Cal Foot are RFAs. Um, oh, I guess also Anders Nielsen, who they have on LTIR, is also a UFA, which I forgot they even acquired him. Uh, but, um, yeah, so so the, the next question was, is like, do we think they can do it again? Um, other, I mean, I, I guess they do have to address trying to find more uh, players who can fill in what Blake Coleman can provide and Barclay Goudreau can provide, but, um, but I don't think they'll have too much of a issue with that because Ross Colton was pretty good in uh, the amount of time that we saw him in. And yeah, he was a fourth line guy, but uh, he may end up getting more ice time just because he's been pretty good in in that limited time frame so so maybe they can afford to lose Blake Coleman if they do that um and Alex Beret Boulay um I am intrigued I thought we would see more of him this season but I guess yep. he's um he's just in a Syracuse for, a, for he was in Syracuse this whole time um Matthew Joseph also played pretty well so I I feel like they're in pretty good shape just from addressing like the loss of Blake Coleman potentially. I guess they could keep Blake Coleman, but they are really up to the cap. Um, so I don't. Th- they don't really have a ton of money to spend, and they're just going to have to hope that those guys I just mentioned are going to have to fill those those roles. And um, it's, it's like I wouldn't put it past them to do that. Um, of course, they're always going to be dangerous because they have Point, Kucherov, Stamkos. Victor Hedman and Alex Vasilevsky. Um, it's just like, you know, building the other guys. Um, and, and that was a big reason why they were able to win back to back. But um, but yeah, if a, if a few of them are going, it's not, it's not too bad um, that I, I feel like they can afford to lose the, those free agents. Yeah, so taking a look at um, what you just mentioned, uh, you mentioned Anders Nielsen and his $2.6 million are a free agent. Also, Marion Gabrick, uh, they acquired him from Ottawa along uh-huh. with Anders Nielsen. His cap hit is $4.875 million. So that's basically dead cap that was just sitting there. They weren't Got using it. it. That'll come off the books. I'm guessing neither will be back because injuries are just screwing them, particularly Anders Nielsen. Um, I th- I, I hope yeah. he plays in the NHL again, but with the concussion thing, I honestly don't know. Um, Cap Friendly says I, that he's yeah. a UFA this year, anyways, and they don't even mention Mary Gabrick on there, so I, I don't yeah I don't know if that's even counted towards the cap. Yeah, I think it's dead cap, and it's this the same with Nielsen or 
Well, they have Nielsen on the LTIR, but I don't even see um, Gabrick anywhere. Yeah. Well, the the record uh, should show at okay. the beginning of the year that Gabrick was on that. All right. Well, no, I believe you. Um, I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying. A cap friendly doesn't have that. Yeah, they, they did a lot of interesting things. <laughs> I, I guess that was a, a way for uh, putting Nikita Kucherov on LTIR at the beginning of the year. So they they put I think Gabrick uh, and Nielsen on dead cap uh, to make that happen to to make enough room for Kucherov to be placed on LTIR because I think there's a limit there got it. for salary that needs to be put there. But yeah, anyways, different story. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, there are definitely some pieces that are going to be off of this team, whether it's free agency or via trade. Um, honestly. Goudreau only cost 925000 on his latest cap hit. Coleman at $1.8 million, definitely getting a pay raise after the last couple of seasons with uh, the Devils and Lightning, uh, most of that time in Tampa Bay. Um, towards the second half, I really liked his play. The results were showing it as well. In the playoffs, he was uh, pretty good as well, scored a lot of timely goals, great secondary scoring option. I honestly think the upside is there to the point where they should keep him if they can. Um, regardless if they can or if they can't, um, I think probably Luke Shen they'll keep around for death purposes. David Savard, I don't know how much of a game changer he is on the back ends and where they think Callum Foote is in his development, I think could play a role as to you know, the defensive depth options like Savard, like Luke Shen, um, like Freddie Clayson, like Luke Witowski, who's a forward slash defense hybrid now, um, that could factor into what they do there. And I think the forward prospects are also going to play a big role because I fully expect Alex Barry Boulay to have a permanent role on the team, whether it's third line, whether it's fourth line, maybe it's top six. Who really knows? But I definitely think the potential is there for him to do something next year. You also have uh, Gage Concalvis in the system, Taylor Radish, an RFA in the system, Ross Colton. We've seen him score some big goals this season. Um, he's an RFA. I think he yep. can be a serviceable guy for them. You also have Odin Tufto, who you signed out of the NCAA this past off season. Really good off, uh, really good season for him in 2019, 2020 at the college level as well. And they do have Hugo Almafelt in the system in terms of goaltending, but I don't think he's NHL ready yet. There's still a bit of grooming to do there. So I think they could go after one of those short-term UFA goalie bargains. I don't know who that would be, but I think they bring in a guy on a one-year, two-year deal max um, to be a serviceable backup for Vasilevsky. Because as much as I like Curtis McElhaney, I, I've said it multiple times on the podcast this year, didn't really look the part whenever he entered the picture. And if Vasilevsky got her in the playoffs, I honestly don't know how Tampa performs with McElhaney in the net. They need a better option moving forward as McElhaney goes into his mid-30s, uh, early 40s. So I think uh, McElhaney's time is done there. And that brings us to the tradable pieces that we talked about in the previous offseason, those being Yanni Gord, Andre Palat, Alex Kalorn, and Tyler Johnson. When Nikita Kucherov was out, Andre Palat was very, very good on the top line. So I think they keep him around. 
Alex Kalorn, I don't know if you heard of the injury, Brett, yeah, that uh, he suffered in the finals. It was a broken fibula. A rod had to be inserted, and if it got to game six, he was going to make a strong case to play, which how in the actual hell would the team allow that? Like, yeah. the guy whose broken fibula is being held together by a rod, and he'll it'll play game six. Like, um, I don't like that at all. Um but the amount of fight that he's shown in his game and the serviceable uh, use that he had this year as a top six, bottom six forward, um, I would probably keep him around. Uh, Yanni Gord, um, after an up and down season last year, had a better campaign this year. Um, I don't think to the level of uh, his breakout year, but I definitely think good enough to keep him in the picture. And that leaves Tyler Johnson. It's no secret that um, his future was ticking away this past season. I think a resolution, whether it's buyout, whether it's trade, whether it's Seattle, please take him. Um, something is going to happen with Tyler Johnson and his time in Tampa Bay is going to be up. But, um, yeah, I think that's the main piece that's going to go. There could be a couple of others, whether it's free agency, whether it's trades. Um I think the futures of Coleman and Gutro are going to be determined by the guys in their system, the guys on the market, and what those guys can do compared to them. Can they do it better, um, or to, or can Coleman and Gutro do it better than a lot of those guys? Um, so it's I think it's all going to come down to strengths, weaknesses, not just money, um, and what Coleman and Gutro provide. I think there's still a chance they keep both of those around. But again, it all determines as to what they see in their team and what they still need to improve and whether or not Coleman and Gutro make them a better team compared to what happens when they're not there. So, I'm, yeah, that's a lot to chew on, but yeah. I'm pretty sure both those guys are gone. Um, I don't see how they're able to keep them because they're, they're pretty, you know, we talked all this stuff about how they were $18 million over the cap and stuff. Um, so, like, during a healthy lineup, they're going to have to have some casualties. And um, as good as depth pieces as those guys are, um, those are g- going to be the casualties. I-, I just don't see a way that they're able to keep those two guys in particular. Yeah, true. Um, so now we'll do the Montreal uh, obituary here. Uh, by the way, I love that we say obituary like this team died and they're not, and, and we basically made it so that like they're not really dead because you know yeah, they're, and, their season died. Yeah, their season died. And they'll, they'll be resurrected but, in a couple months, like everyone but, else. But what we do is we then talk about what their off season is for the next season and seasons to come. So it's not really like they're dead. We're just talking about like yeah. okay, this the is just an update. Process has already started. And also, like, we don't even do an obituary for non-playoff teams either. So it's just... Yeah, no, they're just like, yeah, they, they used to be here. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they used to be here, except for the Sabres. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, so we're going to do the Montreal uh, obituary, but I do want to shout out Carey Price. Um, I, I was critical of him all playoffs pretty much because I, I just didn't really I mean yeah he's been impressive but um, and and I was just wary of like the regular season um, when he you know he wasn't as consistent as he had been in the playoffs 
Um, and then it turned out that, yeah, during the you know Stanley Cup Finals, and obviously the Lightning are a better team than uh, a Shifley-less Winnipeg Jets team and a, a Tavares-less uh, Toronto team. But, um, but yeah, Carey Price did hold his own a lot of the times. There were, like, point, like, there was a couple of games that, uh, you know, where it felt like, uh, Tam- it was like, um, it was like 6-3 Tampa or whatever, but there was, for the most part, it was, like, pretty close. It was, um, you know, there was one nothing game, which was game five. Uh, he won in a 3-2 against, um... Um, in, in game four, but like, uh, you know, game three, it was like two, uh, uh, it was three, two or something like that. So like he was, he was still pretty impressive, um, throughout the entire series. So I do want to shout him out. Uh, yeah, he had a 924 save percentage and a 2.28 GAA. Also, I do want to mention that a couple of those goals were like, like, I don't know if he necessarily could have had. It was like Tampa really had to will themselves to score those goals, and it wasn't, like, all, like, because uh, Carey Price couldn't... Like, they weren't soft goals, pretty much. Um, so, especially that... Uh, oh, no, never mind. That was Josh game, Anderson. Game three was, game three was uh, where the couple of questionable goals were. Yeah. That was a 6-3 game. But game right. four, where the season was on yeah, the line, Carey Price played his heart out and it was the same with game five as yep. well and it's it's obviously pretty tough for montreal to perform in those situations because their backs are against the wall if they force game seven they face four straight games with their backs against the wall yep. and their season's over if they don't perform like that's a lot to ask right 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 um nick suzuki led the team in the playoffs with in points with 16 of them uh 22 game in 22 games uh, Tyler Toffoli, I think he was one of the ones who got in, who was like injured during the Stanley Cup Finals. I remember you yeah, saying that. Yeah, he was. Uh, so to actually recap uh, the injuries that that Montreal Canadiens had, uh, we mentioned the Kaloran stuff. There was also Nikita Kucherov, uh, who had I think a fractured rib, and he needed injections throughout the final just to play in it. Um, Montreal was even more banged up than Tampa Bay was. Uh, Gallagher was right, playing through a down. groin injury and then some, and then on top of that, his house got robbed. So, right. yeah, more more off-season stuff to deal with uh, for Gallagher. Unfortunately, um, yeah. Toffoli, uh, you mentioned uh, about his injury. He played through a groin injury. He, that's probably why he didn't really score anything during the finals. Um, I believe Shea Weber was dealing with a thumb injury, and of course Jeff Petrie battled through the majority of uh, the Final Four and the Stanley Cup Finals with that finger injury. Right. Um, and apparently the bloodshot eyes went and he passed out when they were uh, fixing up his finger. I guess the blood vessels popped in his eyes a little bit, which explains why they were absolutely bloodshot and he looked like you were staring at the devil right. when you were facing off against in the first two games. Also, Corey Perry had, like, a huge scar on his nose. That was, like, a yeah. visible one. Perry but, and Gallagher were pretty bloody yeah. multiple times during the playoffs. Right, right. They, were, they were freaking warriors throughout yeah, the whole yeah. thing. They're, they're, they were nuts. Uh, I thought we would see more of Cole Caulfield in the Stanley Cup Finals, but he did do his part in his first, um, you know, stint in the NHL. But, uh, so he had 12 points in 20 games. 
Um, of course, five of those games were against uh, Vasilevsky. So, um, you know, it was still pretty good. Um, so <laughs> we'll see uh, how he does in the regular season. Um, as for their cap-friendly stuff, they actually have a few, a lot of UFAs this year um, and a couple of RFAs. But uh, the UFAs are Corey Perry, who we just mentioned, Joel Armia, uh, Philip Deneau, Eric Stahl, Thomas Tatar. Um, and then you also, have, on the defensive side, I think you have John Merrill and Eric Gustafson. Um, as for RFAs, you have Archery Lekunin and Jesperi Kotka Niemi. I always mispronounce his name, but I think I got that right there. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I, I don't think it's, like, too bad, but uh, I feel like Philip Deneau, um it's always been rumored that he's he's going to be on the trade block or he wants out, but uh, the fact that he's, like, one of the best uh, two-way forwards in the league, um, or one of the best defensive forwards, I should say, um, in the league, I, I would imagine he'll... Um, he'll be like a hot uh, topic or free agent um, signing somewhere. Um, but, you know, I, I guess maybe Montreal keep, decides to keep him considering that he had a pretty good uh, playoffs. He was able to shut down like Blake Wheeler and Kyle Connor um, entirely in Winnipeg. And, um, and he was, you know, um, uh, and you need more of those type of guys to play who are defensively responsible. Um, so, like, I, I think what Tampa was able to do is, yeah, they had a lot of depth, but, um, but like, what Tampa did that Winnipeg didn't do was, you know, they put all their best guys away from uh, Philip Deneau, where Winnipeg just didn't do that, um, which, is, which is pretty interesting. So that just shows how much respect the league has for Philip Deneau. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to see uh, what his contract's going to be, if it's even if it isn't in Montreal. But I'd imagine, I think Montreal is going to try to sign him um, after, after this playoff run. Um, also, Corey Perry, I, I mean, I know he's 36, but um, he, was, he was like a force. He was a monster, all, all playoffs. He, it always felt like he was in on the action. It was back to, like, classic Corey Perry that we were used to um, in his early career. Um, yeah, of course, he's not, like, a 40-goal scorer like he once was, but, um, but he's, he's, like, a tough-as-nails type of player, um, and I feel like there's always, needs for the, uh, there's always a need for that type of player um, in the league. So, um, so yeah, he, I, I feel like Montreal's cap situation, yeah, they have, like, $14 million in cap space, they could probably, you know, uh, throw him a couple million um, and and use him, but um, just based off of how he was able to uh, be successful in the playoffs. But, um, but yeah, I think those are the main two UFAs that they should probably uh, consider. Thomas Tatar is an interesting UFA as well because he didn't play at all during these playoffs, but, like, they, you know, he was pretty good in the regular season, so um, I'm not really sure why he didn't really play at all, because he was healthy scratch for a lot of it, um, which was a little bit interesting in terms of a coaching move, but, um, but yeah, I am curious about what what's going to happen with Thomas Tatar. Um, at $5.3 million, unless he's willing to take a discount, He's gone. 
Yeah. Um, and the thing with Deneau is, I believe, I don't know if it's fact, but I have heard that in the past, he was offered an extension by, or I don't know if he was offered an extension by Montreal, but I believe what he wanted was $5 million per year. Uh-huh. Deneau is a, one of the best two-way forwards in the game and pretty good at shutting down the other team's face-off threats. Again, even though the Montreal Canadiens didn't have to worry about Tavares in round one, and they didn't have to worry about Shifley in round two, and Chandler Stevenson in round three, which is not nearly as good as Tavares or Shifley, but still the best face-off guy that the Vegas Golden Knights had to offer. And you know, had a pretty good season. Um, even then, with all of those penalty-killing capabilities, Deneau's not worth $5 million per year. Like, there is a price for Philip Deneau to stay in Montreal. Uh, $3.83 million. I definitely think he's worth a bit more than that. $5 million is a bit too much, and I don't know if I would pay that. That's like three hundred k less than what Tatar is making right now. And Tatar's not worth five point three million at yeah. the moment. There, like there were points in the finals where he wasn't even playing. Well, yeah, I I agree, I agree with you on Tatar. I don't know if I agree with you on Deneau. Um I feel like Deneau has earned like like that contract. Yeah, he doesn't score as much as all these other like two way forwards. Uh, but like, yeah, he's more of a defensive forward. But I think those. Like, what he's able to do comes at a premium. Um, and, yeah, I, I could see him getting $5 million. It may not be Montreal. I, I understand that point. But uh, I would imagine there's going to be a team that will offer him $5 million. Maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Which I, I feel like $5 million's like, the limit I'll go. Um, but, like, I don't, th- I don't think he deserves, like, $6 million. But, um, yeah. but I, 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 I would be okay with $5 million. Which I feel is why he might be gone from Montreal because I don't know if Bergman will want to pay him that kind of money. Right. Eric Stahl, three point two five million. Again, if it's for a good price, I keep him around because, like, who else do the Canadians have down the middle right. besides Deneau? Besides like Cockney Emmy, Suzuki who was scratched in games four and you five forgot, as well. Did you there. forget Nick Suzuki? Yeah, Nick Suzuki too. So I think. Having him back for like a year to like help mature those those young guys a little bit, I think would definitely help. So I would keep Eric Stahl back on the one year deal. Same with Corey Perry, Joel Armia. If the price is right, maybe it's two point six million right now. But you know, again, like you're paying two point six million for what? I don't know if he's going to get you thirty to forty points. So. Yeah, that's something to think about. Mikhail for a league who, yeah, he's he's on the Habs books at four point three million. He's probably gone. Jordan Wheel, maybe you bring him back as chief depth. Uh, John Merrill, same thing, nine hundred twenty-five thousand. Maybe you keep him around as the bottom pairing. Eric Gustafson at three million is too much. If it's like one million or one point five million, I bring him in uh, to help shore the defense a little bit. I think what needs to be made clear for the Montreal Canadiens is, and we've mentioned it before in the postseason, trust the young guys more. Yep. Like, scratching Kakaniemi in games four and five, 
uh, waiting until basically your back's against the wall in Toronto to play Caulfield more, and he's one of your best offensive players in overtime, just a clutch performer. Um, the tandem that he's already, uh, the chemistry that he's already built with Nick Suzuki, um, it's the future and moving forward, that could be one of the most underrated forces in the entire NHL. Right. And I think you need to experiment with that more. You also have Ian Meshack, Cameron Hillis, Ryan Paling in the system. Alex Romanov, who I think yeah, uh, needs to be utilized more. more. Caden Gooley in the system. Caden Primo in the system, who I think in a couple of years uh, will be a regular for the Montreal Canadiens behind Carey Price. And I think for Carey Price, you need to uh, find a long-term solution when Carey Price is ready to pass the torch, he's 34, soon to be anyway, um, and not getting any younger. Um, like you look at you look at the core. Like yes, you have Gallagher and Toffoli and and all of these guys, but the main guys that drive this boat, Shea Weber and Carey Price, they're entering their mid 30s now, and yep. they're not getting any younger. So you need those young guys to step up, and you need to trust them more. So whether it's Dominic Ducharme, Luke Richardson, whoever it happens to be on the bench, whoever they go with next year uh, as coach, um, they need to really get into the habit of giving the young guys more opportunities. Because for whatever reason, Montreal seemed to play better when those young guys uh, had chances to succeed. And in particular, in those overtime situations, like putting all of your faith in like Deneau and Tatar, they can still do that, but could they do it less? Probably, uh, because I think the young guys are ready for it. In um, in in defense of Caulfield, um, just that Caulfield decision. Um, I uh, well, I agree with you on Kaka Niemi. It felt it felt like it feels like they like I don't know what they're doing with him development wise, but uh, for, for Caulfield, uh, he only played a couple of games in the regular season. Um, and I, I think it made and you you don't really get you didn't really get a sense of what he's capable of doing, um, you know, because he's you know he literally just came from college, so you don't really know yeah. what you're doing, and um, I, I feel like that like when you're down three three nothing or I think it was three one at the time um, to Toronto, you know, you're just trying to like do whatever you can to do that. And I I feel like it also just having those games of rest for Caulfield allowed Caulfield to be, to make that run that he was able to do where he was able to like focus on what he needed to focus on. And it just took the pressure off of him in that sense. Um, So I I don't, I I think I could see the reasoning why they, uh, left Caulfield back, but yes, I agree with you on Kotka, Niemi, and Romanov. Uh, they should have played more in the playoffs. Um, but but you know, like as as you mentioned, I think like no one really expected Montreal to even make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, and um, and like yeah, they they did get a little bit lucky with um, Shifley and. Tavares, but they, you know, they beat a pretty good a Vegas team, and um, and and yeah, Chandler Stevenson uh, might have been a factor, but let's be honest, like even if they had Chandler Stevenson, it, it felt like Montreal would have still won. 
uh, that series. And, and, so. and to, the, to the credit of the Canadians, too, like, they had to go up against a trio of mid power plays. Like, Toronto's power yep. play was average. Same with Winnipeg, same with Vegas. Tampa Bay's power yep. play is certainly not that. And I never really got the sense throughout the series that Tampa Bay's power play really dominated. I yep. felt the Habs really kept them at bay, which is definitely great. And to know. And those guys definitely played a big part in that. Um, the 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 worst thing that Mark Bergevin can do is just do nothing. Yep. Because history has has shown us in the past what happens with those Cinderella stories when they don't do anything. Like Dallas, um, I know injuries to Sagan and Bishop didn't help, but they barely missed out on the playoffs. And, and I mentioned it before with the Sens after the 2016-17 run, they didn't really do much of anything. And they bottomed out into like a bottom five, bottom ten team in the league the very next season with most of the guys uh, that they had going in. Um, and like even you look at the Stanley Cup champions like the Capitals in 2018, they've been in the playoffs three straight years, haven't won a playoff series. Uh, you look at Pittsburgh – and they've slowly regressed since their last championship in 2017. So the hands of time, like, it doesn't take long for them to catch up with you. Yep. So if the Canadians think they are going to get the, to the exact same place with a division that has Tampa in it, with a division that has Toronto and Boston and Florida that's improved, and a sense team where you don't really know what you're going to get. I love and how you always mention Detroit the and Buffalo in the mix, too. I really don't see the Habs as a playoff team with the roster that they have next year when you consider the teams in front of them. When you consider if they're not in the top three, they're going to have to go up against whatever the rest of the field in the Metro is, and that Metro division looks pretty damn stacked, more stacked than the Atlantic. So either way, the Habs have, I would argue, a tougher road than Tampa Bay because... At least for Tampa Bay, they have Vasilevsky, they have Kutrov, and they have Stankos and all those other guys. Montreal, they have a lot to do just to be in contention for like a wild card next year. Right. At least that's what I think. Yeah, that's a good point. I also love how you always mention Ottawa when you're talking about how formidable... That's the most glaring example that I can think of. Um, But... um, the yeah, I mean they they are going to be in a tougher division, but I don't know. I, I I feel like they're they're still in pretty good hands. The fact that they were able to like make it out, like even making the Stanley Cup Finals is an achievement on its own right. No one thought they would be there. I think they can definitely build on it, especially when like Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield were your best two yeah. skaters, um, and those guys are like tw- are twenty one and twenty years old. So. I think you can definitely build on that. I do understand what you're saying. It's like, yeah, you're going to have Tampa, Boston, and Florida, and all these other teams, uh, Toronto, all in your division. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, um, at least as a fan of one of those teams, I, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to be taking Montreal a little bit more seriously this year. So, oh yeah, for sure. So I yeah I don't I don't think like it's like unheard of that they won't make the playoffs. Uh, it's definitely possible for them. Um, 
In other news, uh, so we kind of pushed a lot of these news that happened last week. We actually thought there was going to be more hockey news once the Stanley Cup happened. I get because we thought like a lot of teams would just already be in talks, but I guess a lot of teams are waiting for this whole Seattle stuff uh, to make way. So that's why we didn't, haven't seen Jack Eichel uh, get traded, which I thought he was. I mean, there was like rumors that. Uh, Tarasenko wanted out, has requested a trade. There was rumors that uh, OEL is potentially out, uh, Steve's favorite player. Um, <laughs> and uh, there, there's another one that uh, I think had a couple of trade requests as well. But uh, these were uh, the big news that we found um, that were just based off of all the other, uh, uh, all the other stuff that we uh, couldn't cover the last two weeks. Um, so the Sabres uh, hired Don Granado. Don Granado, um, he was the guy who took over um, after uh, Kruger got fired. Uh, Don Granado actually, uh, surprisingly, he actually played pretty well um, for this, uh, or he coached pretty well, I should say, uh, for the Sabres afterwards um it really like it was kind of like too little too late of course but uh yeah he i mean and his record doesn't really show it he they ended up going 9 16 and 3 but like you well, know better than the record they had I'll yeah say that. That, that's true too and i will say that like they it, it felt like they were giving in particular, what I noticed more was, like, they were giving more shots to, like, guys like Casey Middlestad, R2 Ritzelainen. Um, it felt like Rasmus Dahlin was finally getting going. Uh, Dylan Cousins had his moments at times. So it really felt like they were, like, um, like they were kind of just on a good route or ending the season on a good way, even though, like, this was a disaster of a season. It could not have gone any worse. I should also point out, when Granado took over, uh, Linus Olmark and Carter Hutton were both yeah. injured, which means they had to deal with Dustin Tokarski, yeah. Uko Pekalukinen, who also got hurt, and yeah. Michael Hauser. Those yeah. are the three goalies they basically ran with, with Granado at the helm, and they still did fairly well. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point, too. I think uh, Linus Olmark did come back, and I guess that was another reason why the Sabres had such a nightmarish season oh, yeah. was Olmark was out, and once Olmark was injured, they didn't they couldn't really recover from that. So, um, mm. and, and obviously Eichel being injured didn't help matters either. But, um, right. but yeah, I think it's, uh, so I, 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 I like that move. Um, and we'll see how it goes, but I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I guess it's like there, there were other coaches that probably could have gotten, um, I guess, uh, the biggest one was probably Bruce Boudreau. That would have been interesting, but, um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I feel like he does deserve a shot to see how he does, uh, with this group of people. Um, and what's interesting is, is like he coached when Jack Eichel was out. So that may be um, what they're going with from now on. It's like that was just like a sense of like this is what the team could look like without Eichel um, on, at the helm. So you know more speculation from that from that point of view. And taking a look at uh, Granado's coaching resume, it's actually pretty fast. Um, that goes back to. Um, 2000-2001 with the AHL's Worcester Ice Cats. 
Uh, they went 48-29-3 his first season there with 108 points. Uh, since then, he spent five seasons as a head coach with the U.S. National Team Development Program, where he coached top American names like Noah Hannafin, Quinn Hughes, Austin Matthews, Charlie McAvoy, Matthew Kachuk, Zach Wierenski, oh yeah, and Jack Eichel. Also coached Jack Eichel um, with the U.S. National Development Program. Um, so when you consider how good those names have turned into uh, at the NHL level, um, definitely speaks to his track record, um, his positive approach to drafting and developing players. It's funny because it, he was, you know, in the same household as Tony Granado and Cammy Granado, who have accomplished a lot in their own right uh, in the hockey scene. And back when he was a kid, this is a guy that was like well before most coaches or well well before like the age where people think, yeah, I want to be a coach in the NHL or or some sort of hockey program someday. He would like as a kid break down film of like Wayne Gretzky. So like th this guy already like in his teens, like as a young guy, was already thinking about his role as like a teacher as a coach so that's pretty interesting as well uh so after his time at the u.s national development program he was an associate coach for the wisconsin badgers in 2016-17 cole caulfield wasn't a student back then but should be noted cole caulfield was a wisconsin badger uh then uh granado goes back to the nhl he's a solid assistant coach with the chicago blackhawks for two years um then he's an assistant coach in buffalo uh he uh arrived there in the 2019 offseason and uh, then is gradually given the interim tag after Kruger leaves and now he's the head coach. Um, I The one thing I think that gave Granado the inside edge was the fact that he had recent success with the players. He already had a camaraderie with the players and the players had fun playing for him. Like, Let's remind everyone of how bad the Sabres were and how bad things quickly went. They have all of this hype. Oh, Taylor Hall's coming to town. You're like, look out, we're going to make the playoffs. I know our division's probably hell, but we're going to make the playoffs somehow. We're at least going to be contending. We're not going to suck. And then they get that COVID scare, and then they just lose and lose and lose and continue to lose. And everyone's just like, oh, man, the freaking Sabres are just so bad. They're just so bad to watch. And, you know, they, you hear that on local radio. You hear it in the media. You hear it in the general public with the fans because they know how bad you are. And then Taylor Hall calls his shot to go to Boston, and he has immediate success. And then it continues. Oh, you know, Taylor Hall is doing great. And meanwhile, we're just still terrible. And that – that gets to players, you know, yeah. that negative energy gets to players and it just continues to build. It feels like it's not going to end and everything just continues to go wrong for your team. Guys were showing up to the rink with smiles on their faces because Don Granado was able to get them excited to show up to the rink every day. Despite everything bad that happened, he got them to trust his vision and he got them to be happy be happy even when things were going to hell in a handbasket basically and 
he was slow. I'm not saying he changed the culture in Buffalo, but it certainly would have been a lot worse if he wasn't there. Yep. And I definitely think that bodes well for him moving forward. And I think that's part of the thing that you need moving forward because the pain, I don't think, is going to stop for the Sabres fans, as we mentioned. The stuff with Jack Eichel, his injury, his future in Buffalo. The future of Sam Reinhardt in Buffalo, probably done as well. The future of Rasmus Ristolainen, and probably sealed shut as well. The future with Linus Omar, probably going to free agency, probably not coming back. It's just going to continue about all these guys leaving Buffalo and your team is still bad. And, oh, first overall pick again. We haven't seen that before. Oh, wait, we have. We saw it like three years ago. We picked Rasmus Dahlin and now he's on our team and we still suck. So you're still going to need that guy to make it fun to come to the rink every day. And with Don Granato in the picture, you you at least have a positive-ish culture to go to. And that's where Buffalo can get better. It starts with the vision. It starts with a coach that you want to play for, and you build from there. And I think Granato, for that, for all those reasons I mentioned, is the perfect guy for the job. He might not have the resume that guys like Mike Babcock have or guys that Bruce Boudreaux have, but I think he's exactly right now what this team needs. Yeah, I, I, I think I like this move just from like a culture standpoint that you were talking about, but I could easily see this like also going south pretty quickly too. Cause, oh uh, yeah, it's Buffalo because yeah, everything Buffalo. goes south, exactly. that's why. Exactly. Uh, so uh, in other coaching news, Andre Torini, um, is the new Arizona Coyotes coach. Um, and, oh, Rick Tockett should have, could have been the Buffalo Sabres coach. I forgot that was another yeah. guy they could have was, had. He was available too, so yeah. was David Quinn as David well. Quinn, David Quinn's another one, yeah. Um, but, um, uh, so Steve actually has experience with Andre Torini because he was the Ottawa 67s, which is uh, Steve's favorite OHL team. Uh, he was the head coach of their team for the last three years. Um, he was also, a, I, I see here, he was an Ottawa Senators assistant coach in the 2015-2016 season. Very briefly, but yeah, yeah, he was with them. Yeah. Uh, he was also Colorado t- uh, for two years before that um, as an assistant coach. Um, also, interestingly, uh, he was the uh, Halifax Mooseheads QMJHL head coach uh, in 2016-2017, which I believe was the Nico Heischer year. Um, so that's kind of a fun little factoid. I don't think that really means anything. But um, but yeah, just looking at his stats, obviously Steve knows him a bit better than I do because uh, he's only really coached in the QMJHL and the OHL, particularly Steve's team. But So I'll let him talk about it. But it does seem like he has pretty... He's, he did pretty well. He had... Uh, the 67s went 15, 11, um, and 1 his, the last year. Obviously, the pandemic canceled the OHL season, so that was like two years ago from now. Um, and then the year before that, he also, he also had 50 wins, uh, 12 losses, and 6 uh, overtime losses there. So, um, so sorry for your loss for your uh, junior team, Steve, but I'm yeah. sure you're happy for this guy that he gets his shot in the NHL. Oh, yeah, I'm very happy with Turin getting his shot. I'm pissed that we don't have him with right. the 67s anymore. But, yeah, no, it, 
I, if it wasn't the Coyotes, I think an NHL team eventually would have picked this guy up. Yep. Um, especially when you consider his ties with Hockey Canada, which I really think thrusted him into this NHL spotlight as well. And Shane Doan, I think, with ties to Hockey Canada, um, I, I saw him, um, there was a photo that the Coyotes posted of him and uh, of Turingi and Shane Doan sharing a laugh after the press conference. So I think... We all know how the Coyotes found out about Andre Turini with Shane Doan. Um, and Shane Doan is a smart man because I think they've they've hired a smart human to coach this team. The thing with the Buffalo Sabres and the Arizona Coyotes that's very similar is they're going in the downward direction. Um, with Buffalo, I think it's a bit more obvious, but you look at the Arizona Coyotes, they, it's no secret that the trademark on Oliver Ekman-Larsen is back on again. I've also heard that they're taking offers on Connor, on Connor Garland as well. Right. Um, that was the other one. Yeah. They, they also have Antti Ranta as a UFA, probably not keeping him. There's also chatter in the past that they would might trade Darcy Kemper. Basically, anyone with value maybe is up for discussion right now in the trade market. Um, so you need a youthful coach that that's going to get the most out of his players and make it fun to come to the rink every day. And Andre Turini developed a positive culture in Ottawa that the team got behind. And the one thing that I really, really liked about the Ottawa 67s is no matter what the circumstance under Andre Turini's regime, that team would find a way to win games and it was always fun. They would make it fun to watch that team play. They could be down by like two or three goals in the third period, and they get two or three goals to tie it, then they win it in overtime. They they just had that type of instant chemistry, that camaraderie that you need in a hockey club to pull off throwing events like that. And they did it on the regular. Yeah. Like you, you never went into a hockey game where it's just like for most teams, like, oh down two or three goals, yeah, the game's probably over down two, three goals in the third period, just like, ah, the 67s have got this, they'll find a way to win. And then they did. And just the amount of success that they had in the short time that Turini was there, you didn't notice it in the first year he was there. They were just hovering around 500 then. But then that first year where they had, like, 50-plus wins, and they had, like, a 50-goal scorer in Ty Feliber, um... You have Austin Keating putting up points, uh, Ty Feliber putting up as much assists as he did goals, I'm pretty sure. And guys like Noel Hoffmeyer and Kevin Ball on the back end, too. And that team really matured together. Marco Rossi, Jack Quinn, same thing. Mitch Holscher, same thing. They just really matured and gelled together. And things continued without Feliber in. Uh, 2019, 2020, where the pandemic uh, cut everything short, that team didn't really miss a beat. They still had Keating, they still had Hoffmeyer, they still had Kevin Ball. They didn't have guys like Kyle Maximovich and Mike DiPietro that they brought in after the trade deadline. Um, but they still had like guys like Marco Rossi and Jack Quinn who both elevated their games to the point where they were just as strong, if not stronger, than the season prior. And they won 50-plus games again. Even in that shortened season by the pandemic, they still got the 50 wins after all. Um, So when you consider all of the success that he had with the OHL, you would think, okay, when usually when you have this success, Hockey Canada, 
or USA Hockey, if you're an American coach, they'll take interest and they're just going to be like, okay, maybe we should bring these guys to a lot of international events because he obviously has a pretty good pulse on the team that he's coaching. And so Hockey Canada did the smart thing and brought in Andre Turingi for the World Juniors. In 2020, he was an assistant. Spoiler alert, Team Canada wins gold medal. Who, who knew? Uh, spoiler alert, with him at the helm at the 2021 World Juniors, they don't win a gold medal, but they make it to a gold medal game and come up short by a few goals. But still, they're right in the thick of it, and they find ways to get to the big stage again. Uh, and then they bring him to, I believe he was a part of the uh, World Hockey Championship winning Team Canada squad in 2021, where Gerard Gallant was that coach. I believe Turin was a part of that as well. Um, and he was a part of several Hockey Canada events outside of the World Juniors. So at that point, you're thinking, okay, he's going to be spending a lot of time with Hockey Canada, but also a lot of professional hockey teams, AHL, NHL, they're going to be knocking on his door eventually asking him for a job. And the Coyotes were able to do that. And I think with a young hockey team that the Coyotes have with the young pieces like Clayton Keller, Nick Schmaltz in the system as well, Jacob Chikrin, that continue to raise their games every single year, but they need that extra step in the right direction. I think Andre Turingi can provide that. He can provide a vision. He can provide a culture. And he can provide a positive culture where he can get this team playing for each other. And I think this offseason that's going to be filled with change, they're going to need a face in the organization that has that type of vision that Turingi has. So I don't think you're going to see it right away, but I think in a couple of years, Arizona could be a team on the rise. Um, that I think a lot of people will need to take notice of. Um, obviously, that depends on a lot of things, like what the division outlook is going to be, because you have Seattle, and you would think at least one of those California teams is going to get back to relevancy, and there's still going to be Vegas, and you have the Western Canadian teams in the mix as well. But all things considered, I think the Coyotes do have what it takes to eventually get to that point of relevancy and i can see andre turingi having a continued amount of success with this team i can see it however i don't know because he's never been an nhl coach before right. he's had some assistant coaching gigs in the nhl this is his first head coaching opportunity so we'll wait and see what happens um and i'm i'm just hoping for the best i hope andre turingi has a lot of success in arizona and the team is able to thrive off of his advice because I definitely think they're going to need the positive advice with the offseason that's ahead of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, um, you kind of said it a little bit there, was that, like, they are kind of in a, a good, like, a weaker division next year. Uh, they have, I mean, yeah, they have Vegas, but they also have the California teams. You don't really know what's going to happen with Seattle, but I probably would gather they're going to re, like be a, in rebuild mode. Um, and so you're in a pretty good spot um, with... Uh, oh, wait, no, Arizona is in the central, aren't they? Because Seattle has moved. 
Oh yeah, I that's forgot right. about that. Oh, so that's yeah. even worse for them then. Yeah, yeah, they're they're going to the central. Okay, so I yeah, changed my, my whole my opinion. Are, yeah, my, yeah. My, my bad, my bad, my no, bad. No, no, no. I, I I almost forgot too. So yeah, <laughs> no, that, that that would have been embarrassing yeah. for both of us that we forgot that. But yes. Yeah. Uh, so I I guess there's like a couple of like fringe teams like Minnesota and Nashville, even yep. though Minnesota is had a great year like they didn't really face the heavyweights of the central yeah. like they're used to and you also have dallas and chicago in the mix uh but that team's gonna have like st louis and colorado in there yeah. winnipeg as well they, 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 maybe they could be a top three team someday but they're they're gonna have to overcome a lot of hurdles to do that winnipeg and dallas are also like up there yeah. too so yeah um all right. Well, speaking of a team that's in that central division, uh, Joel Erickson Eck gets an eight-year, five million annual average value, or sorry, five point two five million annual average value um, deal. This was kind of his breakout year. He had thirty points in fifty-six games. Uh, he was fourth in Selkie votings. He had like a face-off percentage of. Uh, 47.1, which is decent. He also had the most ice time um, in his five years in the league uh, with 17 minutes of ice time. So that kind of just shows, like, okay, if you give a, a player like that more ice time, then he can show what he's capable of. I was also looking here on Hockey Reference because I was curious to see if, like, any of those points that he got were because of Kirill Kaprizov. And um, and it turns out that Kaprizov has only contributed to two of those points, which is which is even more interesting. So it's like uh, it kind of like speaks to how good Joel Eriksson Ek is and Kaprizov is, is that both of those guys had uh, you know showed what they were capable of doing, and um, and they didn't really uh, you know affect each other in that sense. So it was like it's a good sign for both of them, um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like this deal. I mean, it, it is a long-term deal, but I, I think, and, you know, it, I, I think we're not really sure um, how good, like, if he can be consistent with it. But at the same time, he's 24 years old. He's about to be 25 um, this season. So, um, so he's still pretty young, and, you know, I, I think it's a good cap hit just to see what, you can make out of him and you know Minnesota like yeah they have Marco Rossi in the system uh, they did just sign Nick Bukestad for one more year at 900k but um, they don't really have a ton of center depth um, really um, because like Bukestad as good as he is he's pretty much like a fourth liner um, and Victor Rask he did have a breakout year as well but um, but yeah, he's not necessarily, like, he's another one where you're like, what, what's going on? Uh, like, he's not really um, a top-line center. I guess the only one that's kind of close to him would be Marco Rossi, uh, but he hasn't even played um, hockey in a year, so, um, and, and we don't even know if he's going to be good once he's there. So it's, um, yeah, it'll, it'll definitely, I think it's a definitely worth the risk of that. It is, it is interesting too, because like the wild have a habit of signing players to long-term deals like that, like they did for Zach Parise 
and Ryan Suter, Jared Spurgeon, Jonas Brodeen. Uh, I could yeah. go on. Matt Zuccarella is another one. So they do have a habit of just signing these players to long term. But like the other ones, like they they signed when they were like in their thirties or late twenties. Whereas like you know, uh, Joel Erickson Eck will be uh, about thirty two by the end of this contract, and that's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Um, there are a couple of drawbacks though. Uh, for example, um, years four, five, six, seven, eight, he has a ten team no trade coupled with a no move clause. So I don't know which is more powerful, the ten team no trade or the no move clause. I I, I don't know how they dissect which one they're going to take, but uh, either way, that's not the most stunning part of this deal. Um, year four, he makes nine million. And then the year after that, year five, seven point five million. So that's mostly where the money is going to be in years four and five. That's sixteen point five million of his forty-two million dollars. Uh, by the way, that's slightly higher than the cap hit that Ryan Nugent Hopkins signed for, and he's been in the league a fair bit longer than Joel Eriksson-Eck has been. Uh, so year by year breakdown, year one, year two, three million there, year eight, three million there. That's the cheapest part of his contract. And as I mentioned, years four and five is where the moneymaker is for him. But I will say, um, I will say though that like he's still like just that doesn't go against the cap. It's just how it's how the money is distributed. Yeah. Like he's still but making five point two five million against the cap, but it's not like Right. You know, it's, 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 it's not like a huge deal of how it's distributed in that sense. It, it's, it's just interesting how right. in one of those years, a guy of Joel Erickson X caliber, if he's not like making like, like even if he's putting up like 50 to 60 points a year, 9 million kind of sounds like a bit too pricey, but like, even for like one of those years. But, but like he's still like, it's 5 million against the cap. It's not like he, yeah. like, it's not like he, that that's going to affect their cap hit when, when that year happens. True. I just found it pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, taking a look at, uh, the offensive capabilities, I feel like, this is similar, and I, I feel like I mentioned the Brad Marchand contract a lot, but like when Brad Marchand got paid, we thought it's a little bit pricey because he really only has had like one campaign, maybe two, where you're just like, oh yeah, this is going to be a first-line stud right. that is a top 10 score in the league, and now it looks like a freaking bargain, right? right? And maybe a little bit similar when we looked at Nathan McKinnon's stats. Um his best season was this past year when he had 30 points in 56 games. 19 of those 30 points were goals. So that, that's a 44-point pace over a full 82 games, the highest of his career. He had a 38-point pace over 82 games in his rookie year. And last year in 62 games, he had a 38-point pace. So not dramatically higher, what is dramatically higher is the goal output because, as I mentioned, 19 goals in 56 games this year. He had a combined 15 goals the two seasons prior. Uh, and he had 62 and 58 games, so that's 120 games, 15 goals in the past two seasons. And he had 19 and 56 this year. So his goal output's pretty good. And like you mentioned, um, doing most of that without Kirill Kaprizov, that's pretty good. 
119 shots on goal. That's a career, a secondary career high. He had 124 his second year, uh, and his shooting percentage was 16%. So that's, uh, I believe his career high was 7.8 before that, and he more than doubled that this year. So um, definitely getting more shots on goal, getting more goals scored. Um, you love to see that. Also can hit. This is actually his third uh, three of his five seasons, he's had at least 100 hits. He had 105 this year. In his second year, he had 134 spread across 75 games. So he's not afraid to throw the body around. That's good. Um, in terms of power play points, he only had two. Actually, only has three in his career, and the other one came last season. Uh, so interesting to note that he hasn't really gotten any power play time uh, he averaged six seconds as a rookie of power play time per game, seven seconds in year two, 10 seconds in year three, four seconds in year four, and this year only a minute 11 average of power play time. And that's largely because his overall ice time has gone up. It was a career high 1543 last year. This year went up to 1703 per game. Then you take a look at the stat that I mostly like to look at which is the line combinations. This is where you start to find out where this guy does most of his damage. And his most common line mates in even strength ice time were Marcus Foligno and Jordan Greenway. So that was 41.1% of his even strength ice time. That's 326 minutes, 55 seconds of total ice time. He was on the line with uh, Fiala and uh, Jordan Greenway uh, 10.8% of the time, that was around 85 minutes, 33 seconds. And then you have the line where he was on Kirill Kaprizov. Uh, he was on with Kirill Kaprizov and Jordan Greenway. That was 52 minutes, 53 seconds of even strength ice time. And in that time, uh, that line was on for three even strength goals for, two even strength goals against. And they were actually outshot 29 to 24 uh, in that time. The top line that he was on with Felino and Jordan Greenway, um, the Minnesota Wild outscored opponents 23 to 10 in those situations and outshot them 136 to 124. So again, like you mentioned, Brett, most of the time that he had on ice was not with Kirill Kaprizov, and he still played pretty well. Yep. So what happens if you get the faceoff percentage up, you get him on more ice time with Kirill Kaprizov, Maybe you have a dynamic top line for years to come on the Minnesota Wild, perhaps. We'll see. What this, it, what this uh, does, however, is it adds a little bit more intrigue as to how Minnesota pays the rest of their RFAs. Right. Greenway, the good news is he's not an RFA until next year. However, so is Capo Kakinen. Greenway makes $2.1 million right now, Kakinen... 725,000 and if both of them continue to improve on the seasons they had that cap head's probably going to go up you look at Fiala who's making 3 million he's an RFA right now um, you're you're going to have to figure out on top of that how to pay Kirill Kaprizov who made 925,000 if Joel Erickson Eck is worth 5.25 I would think at the very least you give Kaprizov six million. It's probably higher than six million, but at the very least you give him six million. Right. So now it's gonna 
determine, okay, what's Jordan Greenway worth in a year or so? What's Kaprizov worth today? What's Fiala worth today? And you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to find a way to juggle all of that, figure out what you're going to do. As I mentioned with Parise's contract and Brian Suter's contract, Marcus Johansson is a UFA this year. Nick Benino, same thing. Ian Cole, same thing. Both make four million in their previous cap hits. Nick Bukestad was generous enough to take a one-year deal this year worth 900k. His previous cap hit was 4.1 million. You're gonna have to hope that all of the other guys that are UFAs are gonna stay on for less money, just in order to maybe keep Kaprizov at the cap hit and then maybe keep Fiala on a short-term deal possibly. So there's still a lot of money management, a lot of money movement that Bill Guerin's gonna have to do between now and the next couple of weeks um, and, and heading into the season in order to structure his team. Getting Joel Erickson X signed to this contract for an eight years, it's definitely gonna be, I think, a long-term bargain because I do believe his best years are far ahead of him and he made great strides this year, but there's a lot of unanswered parts of this equation that Garen's gonna have to solve. Yeah, that is a good point. I remember when we did the Minnesota obituary that like Fiala yeah. and Kaprizov are going to be their big guys that they have to key in on and stuff. Yep. And and Erickson Eck was a part of that. But yeah, now that Erickson Eck is kind of is being paid now, it's like okay, now what do you now do what do we do? Um, and uh, figure it out that way. So, um, yeah, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what those two get now that we know what Erickson Eck is. But it's a good start. I, I don't think it, I don't hate the deal either uh, from what you were saying as well. So um, I, I guess it also comes down to it's like, are we going to see more of what we saw of him this year versus what we saw in his first four seasons in the league. And I would venture that we'll probably see more of what we saw of him last year. Um, There may be a little bit of a drop-off, but, like, just because he was playing, like, against, like, all the California teams and Arizona and stuff, um, and he won't have that luxury this uh, coming season, but... Um, but yeah, I, I think he, uh, he did take it up a notch and, and we'll see how that goes. Um, Victor Arvids. Oh, we had one last trade. We had one big, semi big trade, I guess it wasn't like a huge mm-hmm. trade, but it was a trade. Uh, nonetheless. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually the first trades made since the deadline. So yeah. I would think the start of off season trade starts with this one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Victor Arvidsson goes to the Kings. Uh, and the Nashville Predators get a second-round pick this year, and they also get a third-round pick next year in 2022. Um, and, yeah, this is this is one of those ones that's it's kind of interesting at first glance um, when you, like, first see the trade, but then when you, like, start to put your nose to the ground and, and start to look at the stats, you're like, okay, I can see why the Kings did this. I can see why the Predators did this. Uh, the King, uh, Victor Arvidsson, uh, he had, in, in 2016 to 2017 season, he had 61 points in 80 games. That was his truly breakout year. He was an all-star that year, too. Um, then the next year, he, he put up the same amount of points, 61 points, um, in 78 games, so slightly less. But somehow, I, I just noticed here, he didn't even get any nominations for anything that year, which was interesting, even though it was, like, pretty much 
arguably a better year. Uh, then this is when he started to drop off a bit, a little bit. I guess maybe he got injured, but uh, his last three years, so in the 2018-2019 season, he had 48 points in 58 games. Still not too bad, but uh, again, like he didn't really play a full season. He didn't play a full 80 games, 82 games. So we'll, uh, we'll whatever. Um, then uh, he does play a full season, but this is the COVID year. Uh, he had 28 points in 57 games, so that's not the same pace, but, uh, you know, it's still not terrible either. This year was when he truly, it truly felt like he kind of dropped off uh, 25 points in 50 games. Um, to be fair, though, like, Nashville has kind of been in a downward spiral uh, the last couple of years. Uh, like Even, like, I remember at the beginning of the year, they were going to sell off a lot of their pieces, um, and, you know, they were going to go in full rebuild mode, um, and, like, trade every guy except for, like, Roman Yossi, um, so, so, but, and then all of a sudden, like, in the second half, they were, uh, they just picked it up and were able to make the playoffs, um, and, and were able to do that, so, um, so I think this is kind of a sign that Nashville is starting the rebuilding process because uh, they get some picks and they get some um, pieces for Victor Harvardson. Yeah, Victor Harvardson's a good player, but um, but at the same time, it's like uh, he's 28 years old. Um, who knows if how good the Predators are going to be this season um, and, uh, and you get some pieces off of it um, in case he does actually fall off. Um, even further than he has. Um, LA, uh, they have a, they're probably one of the deepest uh, prospect farm systems in the league. Um, and uh, so they could afford to lose those two picks. Uh, they also have the St. Louis Blues round two pick um, of this year. So it's not like they're out of the second round entirely. Um, and I actually, yeah, it should it should also be noted that both of these picks are LA's own, so it's yeah. not one of those. Oh, the St. Louis Blues used to own this, yeah. or some other team used to own this. It's LA Kings' original pick in the second round this year, and their original third round pick next year. Just and it should it. also be noted that, like, yes, they they got rid of uh, those two picks, but they also still have picks from other teams in that round. So they have the right. St. Louis pick in round two uh, this year. Believe it or not, it traces all the way back to the Ryan O'Reilly trade uh, <laughs> in Buffalo, which is so, it's, it's kind of interesting that they did that, because uh, I guess I guess what happened was then Buffalo traded that pick to get Colin Miller, and then that's how L.A. got that pick. I don't know how the uh, L.A. got the Pittsburgh Penguins pick trade um oh it was for uh jeff carter for jeff carter yeah yeah, yeah. so um so so that's that's how they did that but yeah i was just wondering like huh i wonder what uh what pick uh because i don't remember an la to st louis trade happening and i was like oh i guess it was the ryan o'reilly trade so that that's a little weird tidbit anyways uh, but yeah, I, I think this is a sign that LA is trying to like compete or try to at least be in like a contention point of view. Um, and you know, I, I think like this is a, a good p play for them because 
Um, you know, you still have Quinn Byfield in the mix. You have Alex Turcott, um, and you have a couple of other prospects to look forward to. Um, and um, and those and and they'll, they'll presumably have a a pick this year. Um, in a, I think they have, don't they have the seventh round this year or something like that? Uh, a seventh, oh eighth, eighth overall pick. I was close. Um, so so they'll they'll get someone good this year too. So um, so yeah, I I think that it's not like they hurt too much of their farm team by doing that. Um, yeah, like they yeah. didn't even have to give up like one of their prospects to get Arvidsson. It's yeah. just two picks that they haven't t- that they haven't drafted yet. Right, right, right. Tyler Madden's another one. Leas Anderson. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at their list now. Uh, Rasmus Kupari is another one. Kaliev. So, uh, so yeah, they have they have quite a few players that will be able to uh, be exciting in the future. Of course, Turcott and Byfield are the most exciting of those guys. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, we'll see how Arvidsson can, um, does with, with this L.A. team. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, I, I like this for both sides. Yeah, so we'll, we'll take a look at Nashville's uh, side of things before we take a look at Victor Arvidsson because this this one, there's a lot less to digest. First off, that second-round pick and third-round pick, who says Nashville uses them? Right. It could be part of the package they dish to Seattle to say, yeah, don't take this guy and we'll give you this. That's fair, too. Um, and it's, it should also be noted that the Seattle thing is part of the reason why Arvidsson was moved. Supposedly, if Victor Arvidsson was left unprotected, Seattle would be taking Victor Arvidsson and they'd lose him for nothing. So instead, David Poyle ships him to Los Angeles, gets two picks so they don't lose him for nothing, and now they're probably still going to have to work out something with Seattle. But, at the very least, they get a second and a third, some sort of value better than nothing for Victor Arvidsson. Now, the... Uh, it should be noted that Philip Forsberg wasn't really too happy with this uh, right. when it happened on Instagram. Put a big fat dislike thumb on it. Um, but down on it, yeah. when when you look at the core and how it was relatively unchanged the past couple of years, at this point, David Poyle is at the point where it's like, okay, you you guys have you guys have had your chances. Now I need to make some moves. I'm pretty convinced that a move like this would have happened with or without Seattle expansion draft being in the picture this offseason, honestly. If it wasn't Victor Robertson, it would have been somebody else. At the same time, I don't think Nashville's going to go into rebuild mode. I think they're going to do a hard retool where some pieces get shipped out, but most of the pieces stay, and they try to win with most of this group. But I think... A trade involving Victor Arvidsson, where they shed some of the cap to keep UC Saros, potentially keep Matias Ekholm in the fold. Um, I think this move was going to happen regardless. Um, obviously, the injuries didn't help Victor Arvidsson, but yeah, just just saying. So that's Nashville's part of the trade tree. When it comes to the Kings, they're getting when this guy's healthy and efficient goal scorer. You look at his first year, he had 31 goals in 80 games, 61 points. Um, He had 246 shots on goal that year. Pretty good. So that's a 12.6 shooting percentage. And 
How many power play points did he have? Uh, he had only nine power play points and four power play goals. So it wasn't really given the amount of power play ice time that you expect. Two minutes exactly on the nose, and he was averaging 17.09 per game. So he averages 17.45 per game the next year. Uh, that power play time goes up a little bit. It's at 2.31 now per game. Uh, and then he gets three goals and eight points on the power play. So power play numbers not relatively affected that much. And yet he has 247 shots on goal and he gets 29 goals in 78 games. So his goal scoring doesn't really dip that much. It's still relatively pretty good. Uh, Then you look at year three in the NHL. Um, Well, I guess year three of Victor Arvidsson is here, NHL. Because he did play 56 games in his rookie year and got 16 points. But, like, this was the main, this was the start of his main NHL journey. And he had 34 goals in 58 games. So his goal per game, probably the best it's ever been. Only 48 points in 58 games because injuries kind of stewarded him a bit. And it's his second, uh, it's his third straight year, actually, with 60-plus points over an 82-game pace. That season, he ends up getting uh only 195 shots so his shooting percentage actually shoots up from 12.6 and 11.7 percent his first two years respectively to 17.4 percent in his third year and his power play numbers brett three goals one assist so his power play numbers actually take a bit of a dive and he's averaging 255 in the power play and 1909 of overall ice time per game. I should mention Nashville's power play not very good during this time. So, right. but Victor Arvidsson in all situations is still able to score goals. That's pretty good. This is where injuries kind of start to continue to play with him. Not as much because of COVID, but to an extent, they did mess with his numbers a little bit. And it's it's injuries are kind of interesting because. You could like fully heal from them and then just pick up right off, right back where you left off, or they could linger and then your play starts to decline. And I feel like that was with Victor Arvidsson some of the time during this stretch, because he only had 15 goals and 28 points in 57 games last year, mostly shortened due to COVID, but only gotten 57 games played. Even if he plays the full 82 games, that's only a 40-point pace, which is 28 points down from the previous 82-game pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, and his shooting percentage goes down. This year, he has 10 goals on 151 shots, which is a 6.6 shooting percentage, and his 82-game pace is 41. 41 points over 82 games. He had 25 points in 50 games this year. So his play definitely taken a bit of a hit. But I think with a clean bill of health, consistent scoring, and a playmaker on his side, I definitely think Victor Arvidsson can find his offensive game again. Because in the past, we have seen what he can do as an efficient goal scorer. And I think with the right pieces around him, he can definitely put up the numbers that we saw in his first three seasons with the Predators. I honestly believe that um, moving forward, he can find his game again. Yeah. Uh, and it's up to the Kings to, to, to find that somehow. Maybe 
maybe they're not done. Maybe they find a way. If they don't get Jack Eichel, maybe they get Sam Reinhardt or it's possible, yeah. A, or a top six scorer of that variety that can really mesh with Victor Arvidsson. Perhaps or or you can do that. Or even uh, have uh, Byfield or Turcotte play with him too. So yeah, either that or one of the young guys emerges yep. and they're, they're able to find. Um, you're able to find some chemistry that way, but uh, in, in any event, I I think um, I definitely think that Victor Arvidsson's best hockey is in front of him, not behind him. Yeah, I I think it's yeah. I guess I didn't really talk too much about Arvidsson and what he what he brings to the Kings, but and you kind of did that for me. But um, I will add to that point that I could see, like I I guess there is that injury risk. But, like, I, I feel like there is a chance that he just needs a change of scenery and um, you yeah. never know. The other thing that to keep in mind, too, is that he'll, he's, like, even though Nashville isn't, like, great in terms of forwards, it's, like, I, feel, I still feel like currently L.A. has worse forwards than uh, Nashville has. So, yeah. so that's another thing to consider is that, like, as good as Arvidsson is, I don't know if he's, like, uh, like a game changer from that standpoint where he can, like, change, you know, win a couple of games for the Kings single-handedly. But I think he is, um, he, it is a good piece for them in the future so that they can, like, mm-hmm. build around it. Because, like, you don't want a team that's just prospects, like what the Auto Senators are doing, or... Um, yeah. you're going to need to get some players who have a few seasons in their in their system and have uh, shown what they're able of doing. So, um, like so, as yeah. much as 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 I like guys like Alex Iafalo and Adrian Kempe, I think Victor Arvidsson is better than the likes of both of them. So, like, he's immediate upgrade to their top six. Is he like a game changing forward? No, but he's definitely an upgrade to to what they already have and they have some good forwards but I think Victor Robertson is better than a lot of them yeah for the most part okay sounds um yeah yeah that's yeah yeah we'll see sorry I was a little bit distracted um <laughs> getting texts everywhere um but yes yes I I, I think <laughs> I agree with about a, any text about a big trade is the no 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 it's, it's just my brother's texting me um okay <laughs> but um yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I heard what you said, but I, I think I agree with, I think we're on the same page yeah. about this. I, I, I've said mostly that Victor Arvidsson is an upgrade compared to a yeah. lot of the Kings forwards. Game changer, no, but definitely an upgrade to, compared to Adrian Campaign right. and Alex Iafalo and those things. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I didn't mind Kempe or I follow, but yeah, I, I yeah. agree with that. But. They're good, yeah. but are they Victor Arvidsson good? No. Debatable. No. Um... Also, okay, so that's it for the show here. Uh, I, um, yeah, so we'll, um, so you can follow us on Twitter at Lace Up Podcast. Our Facebook is Lace Them Up. Our, um, t- uh, yeah, so our Twitter, and uh, you can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcast. Please subscribe to us there. Um, and yeah, um, that's about it. Enjoy the off season. It, it didn't really feel like an, it's, it's, it feels like we've been in the off season for a last while, even though I know technically we weren't, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, 
it's I, I guess enjoy the off season. We'll we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, before we wrap it up, Brett, um, just a precursor to what's happening. Uh, obviously, the expansion draft is coming up, as well as the NHL draft and free agency, which begins July twenty eighth. Uh, it should be noted that this coming Saturday, uh, July 17th, the protection list for all 30 teams, minus Vegas, uh, will be unveiled. So we'll know who's protected and who's not protected the next time we report. So maybe we'll touch a bit on that. Um, I'm sure there's going to be at least one name where we're like, you protected him over that guy? Why? <laughs> so we'll, we'll probably talk uh, a bit more about to that uh, next week. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Um, all right. Uh, see you guys. I'm Brett Dubuff. I'm Steve Osworth. We'll talk again in episode 278 of the Lace Up Podcast.